0: Good morning. Good morning. We're going to be in Psalm 93 this morning so you can go ahead and make your way there in your copy of Scripture. Psalm 93. As you turn there, I'd like to ask you a question. Has there ever been a moment in your life when you found yourself questioning if God could make good on His promises? Has there ever been a moment in your life when you found yourself questioning if God could make good on his promises. And when I ask that question, I, I want to be sure you understand. Know I, I don't mean, as some teachers erroneously say, that, that um, you're wondering if God could make good on some promise that you believe he's given you personally. That's not what I mean. Or, or, or even that, you know, some scripture passage that you've taken and sort of claimed it as a promise. That's, that's not what I, I, I mean. And truthfully, I don't think that. Uh, to pay close attention to the context when the Lord says that He will do certain things for certain people. Now what I'm referring to is the covenantal promises that we find in the New Testament. Mainly, I'm asking if you've ever found it difficult in light of certain circumstances to believe that the Lord Jesus will come back and that under His reign and rule that righteousness and justice and peace ultimately will prevail. And that the totality of existence will be characterized by these things, righteousness and justice and peace. Or have you found it difficult in the face of some situations to believe in the Lord's commitment to hold fast to you, to preserve your faith until the end and make you eternally his? Perhaps you struggle to believe how God can use a particular hardship to sanctify, to, to make you more like Christ. It just feels so hard and so bad that it's difficult to see how the Lord's even involved here, much less how he's working this out for your good. Have you experienced this? I certainly have. And it's something that's not completely foreign to the people of God. In fact, that's the situation of the people of God this morning as we come to Psalm 93. At the time it was written, because of their unfaithfulness, and their disobedience to the Lord, both Israel and Judah had been conquered by foreign powers and taken into captivity. And now, the people of God were returning to their land, the land that the Lord had given them. But now they were having to wrestle with how it is that God would fulfill his promises to them. The Lord had promised Abraham that his people would be a great nation. And that they would be a blessing to all the nations. And then the Lord promised King David that from his line would come a great king. One who would establish a rule in Israel. And a universal rule. One that was characterized by righteousness and justice and peace. But by the time Psalm 93 is written, the kingdom is in pretty pathetic shape. So what we find the author of the psalm doing is helping his fellow countrymen and now us this morning, it helping us to interpret the situations of life in light of who God is instead of understanding God in light of our life situations the author beckons us to contemplate the essence of God's reign by way of considering three truths about God's reign. Three truths about God's reign we're going to consider for the psalm this psalmist morning. First, he shows us that God reigns majestically. Secondly, he declares that God reigns mightily. And lastly, the psalmist reminds us that God reigns mindfully. So that in mind, let's read Psalm 93 together and listen to what the Lord wants to teach us this morning. Psalm 93. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He is put on strength as His belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from the whole, You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O oh Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roar. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O oh Lord, forevermore. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Pray with me, Father, we do thank you for your word, and I simply echo this morning uh, the prayers of my brothers that we've already, Lord, that you would this morning encourage and convict and convince us of the truth found here in Psalm ninety-three. Lord, use my feeble words to help us embrace the reality of who you are, so that we might live lives more devoted to you and faithful. against the historical and spiritual background of psalm 93 the author opens with a reflection on the nature of god we're immediately met with a definitive declaration that the lord reigns and there's no qualification made here as to what exactly is reigned over by god rather presented to us as it is the statement declares God's absolute authority over all and everything. It is a declaration of total sovereignty. The psalmist declaring is, is declaring here that there is not one piece of creation that the Lord does not rule. There is not one area of life, no circumstance, not any person over which God is not in total control. And this is not a, 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 a reality that we have to go searching around to find in the Bible. That the sovereignty of God is on display everywhere in the text of Scripture. And I've heard it said before that the sovereign reign of God could be understood as the message of the Bible. And I believe it. We find it everywhere. Over in Psalm 115, we read, Our God is in heaven. He does all that He pleases. Proverbs 21.1 says the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Ephesians 1 is clear that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Friends, you cannot have an honest reading of the Bible and come away believing anything contrary to the fact that it is God and he alone who reigns. And the scripture teaches us that the God of the Bible reigns presently and actively. Notice the verb tense here in verse 1. The psalmist doesn't say that the Lord has reigned or that the Lord will reign. No, we're told in the active tense, the Lord reigns. And that's significant. We we don't have a deistic view of God and the the, the world set out in the scriptures. We don't believe that the Lord has just set things in motion and then backed away. No, He presently reigns over the universe, making all things to be so. The author of of, of Hebrews brings this out and makes this clear in saying of the Lord Jesus that He upholds the universe by the word of His power. The Lord reigns,
1: friends. Amen. And this proclamation of God's reign is
0: really the thrust of this psalm. It is what the author wants to drive home above anything else, that it is God who is in control all the time. But immediately, this statement of sovereignty is followed up by a meditation on the the character of God's reign. The psalmist says, He is robed in majesty. And we know that God doesn't possess a physical body. So when we read that he is robed in majesty, you understand that he he doesn't put on some sort of physical garment. Rather, the psalmist here, advancing the main idea, the main focus of the absolute reign of God, is saying that when we think on God's rule, our thoughts and perceptions of his reign are to be full of majesty. You see, the, the majestic, by definition, is the presentation of authority. And... So to say that God reigns in majesty is to say that his reign is distinct. It's distinct from every other form of rule in the universe. And the psalmist brings out the majesty of God by pointing to the eternality of his reign. In the rest of verse 1, the psalmist mentions the, the strength of the Lord. But he's really going to flesh that out a little bit later. But what I, I want you to see in the rest of verse one is the parallelism that the author begins to employ and what he wants to teach us through. Look at the text. We read, yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Then in verse two, we read, your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. Do you see the parallelism he's using there? Your, or excuse me, the world is established. Your throne is established the author wants us to see that as firm and steady as we perceive the world to be, infinitely more firm and steady is the rule of our God. Why? Because it's the Lord who has made the world to be firm. The the psalm is showing us that the Lord's reign is majestic because He never began to reign. His throne being established from of old And his being from everlasting is teaching us that God never had a coronation ceremony. He he never had a moment when he assumed his role as king. No. No one can give him kingship. You see, his authority is not derivative. It's inherent to who he is. And just as his existence from eternity past is majestic, his reign from eternity past, is majestic. It means there is no other ruler like God. Having all authority and power before all existence means that every other authority and power that we can conceive of is derivative. It's a cheap imitation. It's nothing in comparison to the majesty of his rule. His reign is majestic. As it knows no limits. However, as we contemplate what it means that God reigns majestically, we have to keep something in mind. The majestic is often considered such because it's beyond us. It's above us. So just as it's beyond us to contemplate a beginning to God's reign, a beginning to his Existence, just as it's beyond us to contemplate these things, it will often be above and beyond us in the span of history that we experience to trace out all the purposes involved in His reign. We can't always know the whys and the hows. To, to be sure, we can know on a macro level the why, but, but we can't know why on a micro level all the time. There are times when His rule may not make sense to us. Much like the situation at hand didn't add up to the people of God in Psalm 93. There are times when we won't understand how in light of the situation at hand, God is going to keep His promises to His people. The Lord even tells us in Isaiah 55, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So the ways in which he accomplishes his purposes are majestically beyond our comprehension. Friends. And the psalmist knows this all too well. He, he transitions from declaring that God reigns majestically to declaring that God reigns mightily. But he doesn't make that transition without crying out about the very real instability, insecurity, and vulnerability that God's people were experiencing at the time. The next thing we read in the passage, look there in verse 3. He says, the floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods lift up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. The ancient Israelites were a land-loving. That they were not people comfortable with the sea. If you survey the Old Testament, you'll find that the sea is often associated with, with trouble and chaos. One theologian said that if you were to read a Hebrew horror story, it would be oriented around the sea. Hence the book of Jonah. And here, the case is no different. Psalmist is describing the despairing state of the people by employing the imagery of the sea. And not just a vast expanse of the sea, but an unsettled, raging, roaring sea. The message is clear God's people are fearful, they're discouraged, and they're anxious. Having just come out of captivity to the Babylonians, Judah was trying to sort of reorganize itself as a nation. But there was a struggle among the people to even secure food and clothing for themselves and their families. To say that there was a lack of resources for the nation as a whole would be an understatement. And there was this ever-present, very real, physical threat of vulnerability to opposing kingdoms at this time. Because the wall of Jerusalem lay in ruins. It was totally exposed for an enemy with any amount of power to come and ransack. So physically, the people of God were in distress. But they were in real spiritual distress as well. The people could not see how God was going to make good on His promises. This once great kingdom, the kingdom that was supposed to bless all other nations, the kingdom that the Messiah was supposed to come from, the kingdom was barely free from slavery. And it was far from flourishing. And in the face of these things, how can God's eternal covenants be true? How can it be that the one who was supposed to crush the serpent's head would come from the line of David and that his throne would be established forever? How can it be that his kingdom would be made sure forever? And what about God's promises to Abraham? The, the, the kingdom is divided and it's barely standing. How's it supposed to be that a multitude of nations are to be blessed through this nation? There's a lot that seems out of control in the context of Psalm 93. There's a lot that seems to threaten God's eternal promises and purposes. And if God can't keep His eternal promises, then how can we trust Him in the particular Well, in this devastation that the people of God were experiencing at the time, the author of Psalm 93 remembers the character of God. And we find him now interpreting the apparent chaos in light of who God is rather than allowing his beliefs about God to be shaped by the apparent chaos. So with all the very real uncertainty and, and fear at hand, the author says, "Mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mightier. The threats that were metaphorically swirling and surging and pounding down around Israel, like the waves of the sea, were in the light of the psalmist, no match. For the might of the Lord reigns over all. Mightier is the Lord than all their troubles. Mightier is the Lord than any opposing king. Mightier than their lack of resources to rebuild the city. Mightier than even the unfaithfulness of the Israelites that got themselves in this situation. The Lord on high is mighty. And it's extremely doubtful to me that any Hebrew uh, that was hearing these words or singing these words... That it's extremely doubtful to me that their mind would not go straight to the places in Israel's history where God actually displayed His power over His creation and the sea. On hearing, mightier than the waves of the sea, they would have immediately thought of God's parting in the waters of the Red Sea. Remembering that if God had not been mighty enough to violate the laws of nature, such that the Israelites could walk across on dry ground, escaping the pursuing Egyptians. If God had not been powerful enough to do that, then His covenant promises to deliver them would have failed right there. the Hebrew hearing, these words might have thought about the Israelites years later on the banks of the Jordan River. When yet again, if God had failed to control His creation, That his promises to bring his people into the land of Canaan would have proven false. But in all these things, and in in a number of others, God has proven himself to be a mighty king who is able to make good on his promises. The message could not be clearer this morning, brothers and sisters. When you're in a situation where you see how God can make good on His covenant promises. When when you're thinking, how can this be working out for my goodness in Christ's likeness? Or when you think, "Will, will justice and righteousness ever prevail? You can know that God is mightier than the apparent forces of your hardship. And you can look to how He's worked by His power for His people in the past. And you can know that if you're united to Christ by faith, then you are no less one of the children of God than the Israelites. And that means that this is not just the history of God with Israel, this is the history of God with you. And not only is He mightier than the hardship, fully in control, not letting it move one bit beyond His design intention for you. Not only is He mightier than the hardship, He's also reigning majestically over your hardship, in and through your hardship. He's working in and through your circumstances in ways that you can't see. This is why the Apostle Paul can say in Romans 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul doesn't deny the present suffering. But he tells us that every bit of it is
1: producing
0: something gloriously beyond comparison. It's not even worth putting on the scales. But maybe, like Israel, the situation that you find yourself in today is, at some level, a result of your unfaithfulness to God. And you struggle to see how it is that the Lord can redeem you and cover you with His steadfast love and faithfulness. Much less work out your sinful mess in a way that accomplishes His good purposes. Friend, brother, and sister, please hear me. You need to know this morning that God is mighty than your sin. If you're looking to the resurrected Christ, for your righteous standing with God. And know that there is no type of sin and no amount of sin that is more powerful than His atoning blood. And understand, the story of redemptive history is a story of God in His might and majesty using very imperfect people to accomplish His perfect purposes. Now, as comforting as it is to know that God reigns both majestically and mightily, the last point of the psalm may offer even more immediate comfort for you today. The last thing we find in the text, in this text, is the reality that God reigns mindfully. The psalmist writes, Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord. Forevermore. Now immediately it seems that this verse is simply saying that God and His Word is trustworthy. After all, that's what it says. right? And that's certainly true. In fact, if, if you don't get anything else from this verse, get that: Trust God and His promises. Yet this verse in the context of the flow of this psalm does tell us more about God and His reign. The psalmist has just reminded us that God reigns mightily, undoubtedly stirring up the Hebrew imagination to consider all the ways that God has been faithful to his promises. And then we read here in verse 5, your decrees are very trustworthy. But how do we know that his decrees are trustworthy? Well, because, as we just considered, he's proven these things in redemption for a moment, I want us to consider the grace of God made evident by a couple of things. C- consider the grace of God made evident by a couple of things. You ready? First, the fact that God has made His plan and purposes known to His children in His Word. God has made His plan and purposes known to His children in His Word. And secondly, consider that God has recorded how He's accomplished these things for His children in His Word. It's it's amazing to me that a transcendent, almighty, self-sufficient God would be so kind as to reveal Himself and His eternal purposes. But it baffles me that He goes beyond that to reveal and record for us how He's been faithful to accomplish these eternal purposes. And please know that that is what He's done. That's why we read in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, where Paul says, Speaking of those things that have happened to the Israelites, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. God has been so kind, not just to demand your trust, but to let you see His trustworthiness. And and we have more than they had in the Old Testament. At the time the psalmist wrote these words, God's people had no clue how God could raise up a descendant of David to establish His throne and reign in justice and righteousness and bless all the nations. But we've seen it, friends. By faith, we've seen the anointed one. Come to God's people in a way that could only be described as majestic and mighty. In spite of the unfaithfulness of the descendants of David, Jesus of Nazareth has come. And he has come as a rightful heir to the divinic throne. And his life and ministry has proved that he is the son of God. The true son of David. Who would establish his throne and his kingdom eternally. We have, brothers and sisters, the full revelation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. we can say, along with Paul in 2 Corinthians 1, that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Amen. And why can we see this, church? Because God does not just reign majestically and mightily, but He also reigns mindfully. He graciously allows you to see the trustworthiness of His Word and His promises. He doesn't have to do that. He doesn't because, as we read elsewhere in the Psalms, He knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust. So what response is there to this grace what response is there but to devote our lives to holiness? You see it clearly in verse 5 right there. The psalmist says, Holiness befits your house, O Lord. So as we wait for the fullness of the reign of Christ to be made visible, and the times that you're tempted to wonder that this could really be working out for you. When it seems that injustice and unrighteousness is winning the day. What should be your response? A steadfast commitment to holiness and trusting that God works out His plans because He's proven Himself a majestic and mighty King who reigns mindful of His people. He's done that in the past. And because we've seen that, we know that the Lord Jesus will reign no less majestic, no less mighty, and no less mindful of us for all eternity future. One last thing we need to note from this psalm is the simple reality of what it is. it shouldn't be lost on us this morning that this psalm is a piece of corporate worship. The people of God would sing this together in order to remind one another of these glorious truths and and to help one another embrace these glorious truths. And they did this because that's the responsibility of the people of God. We're called to encourage and edify one another. I told you at the beginning of the sermon that there have been moments when I've struggled to trust God's Plans and purposes. One of these instances was a few years ago when Macy and I thought we might lose our oldest son, Wyatt. For time's sake, I'll save the details of the story, but suffice it to say that Wyatt had an episode where uh, we had to rush him to the hospital, and in rushing him to the hospital, best we could tell, he was going to die. Basically. By God's grace, we we got to the hospital and they revived him. And over the next few days, they did a series of tests on him to try to figure out what happened and make sure it didn't happen again. These all produced no answers. As new parents, you can imagine what this was doing to us internally. But on the second day in the hospital, I sent Jeff a quick text and just updated him on how to pray. And then he sent me back a text that I'll never forget. I haven't saved on my phone. Uh, along with some other things he said, he, he said this. Please know that we're praying. And that we're trusting with you in God's absolute sovereignty and his immovable commitment to do you good. And in that moment, that was precisely what I needed to do. Because by God's grace, it triggered a fundamental shift in my thinking. And it wasn't that I, I didn't believe those things before, but that certainly was not where my thoughts were fixed before. And had they not been tethered again, my thoughts, had they not been tethered again to God's immovable promises, who knows where my thoughts would have been. That was Jeff's very pastoral way of, of letting you know that he, he was praying. But it was also his very pastoral way of reminding me and that's where my trust needed to be fixed. Friends, we need that from one another. So take this opportunity to commit yourself anew to helping encourage your brothers and sisters in Christ to look to him in faith, trusting all his promises until he returns and we see those promises made manifest in full. Let me pray for you and then we'll sing about these promises together. Father, we are grateful for your work. Father, we're grateful for the, the grace that you would choose to make these things known to us. And that you would choose to be mindful of your children, making your trustworthiness So evident to us. God, I I pray in light of this text that you would strengthen us to trust you, Lord. In in the storms of life, I I pray, God, that you would help us to embrace the reality of who you are. And it would strengthen us to the last day. We ask it in Christ's name.